Crusade presents Monthly Monday Movie Muckabout because the podcasting world needs yet another movie review show. I am Rick, also known as Not Jeff from Jeff and Rick Presents. And, you know, come on, we've been doing this a long time, folks, so you already know that I love movies. I love movies a lot. And because of my love of movies, I, late one night, broke into the Longbox Crusade headquarters, snuck into their attic, and started rifling through their old collection. They don't mind. They don't care. They're downstairs playing with Sky Strikers. It's all good. But while I'm up here, I tend to uh, reach out to some of my good friends to ask them about movies they haven't seen. And then we sit down, we talk about them. Sounds like fun, right? This time I've got a very, very special guest. All the way from WMQ Comics. WMQA. There we go. It is Matt Lazowitz. How you doing, sir? I'm doing good. How are you? Well... Right now, it's kind of early in the morning, but that's okay. I can survive without coffee for a little while. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on. It's a pleasure having you on. I enjoy the work that you and your buddy Dan do, but I know your guys' work. I've been on your show. Do you want to tell the fine, fine folks about what WMQ Comics is? Sure. Well, WMQ Comics started out as an independent website where my buddy Dan, who is a newspaper journalist by day decided that he wanted to put some comics journalism out there and so we had a website we had our podcast which was a creator interview show where we you know sit down with different creators from across the spectrum of comics and affiliated tradespeople. we've also had retailers we've had uh, designers not just you know your typical comic artists but people who do the graphic designs for books all kinds of different people affiliated with comics come on the show we talk to them for about an hour and we have a lot of fun right now we partnered a few months ago with xavierfiles.com so now we're hosted off of xavier files where we still do a lot of writing and editing and still keep our show up hey it's always good to get some of that x money wherever you possibly can that cheddar spends everywhere damn right <laughs> And there is nothing better than riding on the coattails of another established franchise. How you doing, Longbox Crusade? Eh. <laughs> <laughs> I have always appreciated you guys. You were an early follower of my show, and I really appreciate that. I know Power Packs is something you really, really enjoy, and I've always been very grateful for the help and support you have given. You and your friend Dan have given our show, and you know we've always been happy to join up with you guys and talk about whatever random things we talk about. Yeah, that, that the, your episode, we love you guys. Your episode still remains one of the ones where we maybe could have gotten another episode out of our conversation <laughs> Yeah, in a never, good way. Never, never, never ask Jeff and I our opinions or ask us to talk on something, especially when it's the two of us together, because, well, that's the show, folks. That's the show. <laughs> it's why we have to have creators on, because otherwise Dan and I would just go yeah dan and i have been best friends since god helps the seventh grade yeah so we it's just a constant stream of inside references and so much nerd stuff so much nerd stuff but that's the reason why we're here today it, it's i guess it's sort of nerd stuff but being film lovers, you know, we get into our own discussions about what makes a film great and what makes a film interesting and what makes a film fun. You sent me a great list of movies, and I had the great opportunity to pick one of them. Are you ready to find out what movie I want you to watch? Bring it on. All right. This is going back into the old, old vault, back to 1944 and Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity. 
which is a movie starring Fred McMurray, Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson. And the sound you're hearing there is my VHS tape, because you better believe it, this isn't my collection as a VHS. Good old black and white film, the quintessential, some would say, film noir. And I'm kind of surprised you haven't seen it. I'm, it's a strange blind spot for me because I love classic crime stories. I mean, Maltese Falcon, Mm -hmm. The Thin Man is one of my at least top 10 films, not a noir in the strictest sense because it's sort of half screwball comedy, half noir, but still I was just thinking of movies that I hadn't seen. I come from a family of film buffs. My Mm -hmm. father back in my youth spent a lot of time helping back in the golden age of the eighties and nineties video store, Uh local, a local video store chain that was expanding, help get their stores up. So he was, constantly just bringing home movies uh, he worked at movie theaters he was an off-broadway actor in his younger days he went to the american academy of dramatic arts as college so movies and stage were a big part of my life and so i started out just watching all sorts of movies and i was just looking at this list of movies that i specifically wanted to be flat out blind spots not just yeah. oh i'd like to see that movie at some point but things that i underline three times should have seen by now. Yeah. And this was just that one that I was like, that's the big noir. I mean, I've seen all of Hitchcock and so many Uh of those, I mean, dial M for murder. Those are noirs. And I was like, I I was like, yeah, how have I never seen double indemnity? Yeah. That's gotta be on the list. Yeah. And this is one of the granddaddies of the noir films. It's one of the ones that really established it. I can remember the first time I saw this was actually in a film class. During college, I found as many film classes as I possibly could that could somehow come around my degree of speech communications. And let me tell you, when you're going to Knight College in Portland State University, you could find a lot. So I remember sitting in the PSU theater watching this film during a run of classic films and really developed my appreciation for older movies. But What do you know about this film besides it being the granddaddy of noir? Aside from that, I mean, I knew the cast. Mm -hmm. I know it has to do with insurance, hence the name. I'm sure at some point or another, I have heard a plot synopsis, but I'm not recalling it. I actively skipped listening to an episode of an old time radio podcast that I listened to that replays classic radio because Mm -hmm. there were back back in the golden age of radio various radio shows where they would get the actors who were in classic films and would do abridged versions of those films on radio and there was an episode sometime over the course of the past year of that was doing the double indemnity and like nope want to see the movie first before I listen to the, the Reader's Digest version of this, which is another reason probably why it was near the top of my head when I was thinking of movies I'd missed. Well, let me ask you this really quickly, and then we'll let you go and watch the movie. Were you like me, and did you grow up on Fred McMurray as absent-minded professor and shaggy dog, and did you have this image of him in your head? Oh, sure. He, he he's He's lovable. Yeah. Well, say goodbye to that image. And with that note... <laughs> Although, if you have seen the other Billy Wilder film, The Apartment, then maybe that image is already tarnished a little bit. But another 
fantastic, possibly one of my favorite movies. I am going way off the rails here. What I need to do is I need to step back, allow you to go see the film, and while you're watching that film, we will sit down and listen to an advertisement for 1944's Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. Always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was key. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? You don't know keys. Once he gets his teeth into something, he never lets go. He'll investigate you. He'll have you shattered. He'll watch you every minute from now on. You afraid, baby? Yes, I'm afraid. But not of keys. I'm afraid of us. I'd like to move in on her right now, tonight. If it wasn't for Norton and his strike pants ideas about company policy, I'd have the cops after her so quick it'd make her head spin. Now, we know the Dietrichson dame is in it and uh, somebody else. Only haven't got a single thing to go on, Keys. He'll show. He's got to show. Sometime, somewhere, they've got to meet. And we are back from that old-timey commercial. Once again, we are talking about Double Indemnity from 1944, directed by Billy Wilder. Now, before I give Matt Lazowitz a chance to speak, I'm sorry, Matt Laserwitz, a chance to speak (laughs) and tell us about what he thought about this movie, I'm going to give you a quick synopsis of the film because, although this is a classic, I know many of you haven't seen it. A 1940s slick-talking insurance salesman, Walter Neff, meets up with the second wife of a wealthy oilman. After initially rebuffing his heavy-handed passes, she starts to question him about life insurance policies, specifically those that can be taken out without the knowledge of the ones they are on. Neff knows all the tricks in the book and has ideas on how to get it by the keen eyes of the claims manager, Keys. With a rock-solid plan to kill off the husband, collect on the titular double indemnity clause, and make off with a hot blonde, what could possibly go wrong? So, Matt, what'd you think of this classic, classic film noir, black and white? What was your first impression? This is a movie that I should have seen a long time ago, because this one is, you know, fastball right across the plate for me. So you went in with some pretty high expectations. I'm guessing that it met those expectations. It absolutely did. I mean, I love a good noir, and this one is a pitch-perfect noir. It hits all the, you know, those points that a noir needs to make. It's got the disreputable lead. It's got the femme fatale. 
It's got the ingenue who may or may not be an ingenue. It's got the the guy hunting the protagonist, or which is you know, or that can be flipped if it's the detective who's the protagonist instead of the criminal. But in this case, it's the the bad guy, quote unquote, as the protagonist with the other person hunting him. It's gorgeously shot. I mean, I forget sometimes. When I think of Billy Wilder, I think of Some Like It Hot. I forget how much, how many noirs and how many things he did that weren't comedies. Uh, he's pretty well divided in his oeuvre as both comedies and dramas. But for some reason, Some Like It Hot is the one that always sticks in my head. So it's like, oh, oh, right. He directs a really good crime story when he's, you know, when he's at it. See, whenever I think of Billy Wilder, I think of my favorite film, one of my favorite films, and my favorite Billy Wilder film, and that's The Apartment. That splits the divide between drama and comedy really, really well. But we're not talking about The Apartment. We're talking about double indemnity. And I think you are completely right. This is not only perfect everything that it does with being a film noir, but it also is just it's the textbook for it. This is the film that really put film noir on the map. It is the granddaddy of them all, and there's a reason for it, and you can see it in every single shot in the film. There's a shot at the very beginning of the movie when Neff, Fred McMurray, has just taken the elevator up to his office, and he opens the, the doors, and it's just these this massive office, and it's dark. Mm-hmm. And you just, it hit me when I saw that. And then when you later see it, when it's lit up, it makes that first shot even more like, this is the flip side of what the everyday sees. This is noir. This is the darkness. It's always interesting to look at black and white film noir movies because you you talk about it, you're talking about the darkness and the shadows and, and, and really playing with those elements of light and dark in the characters as well as the setting as well as the lighting it's very very easy to say well it's a black and white film how much texture can you really get in that but you see him walk into a room that's dark with the slats on the windows barely open and there's smoke in the room and you can tell that there that the grays are a little bit sharper that the blacks are a little bit darker and a little bit of light is very pinpointed on what the auteur wants you to see. Absolutely. This movie does so much with black and white. I mean, oh, the scene on the train when he's trying to hide from the chatty guy <laughs> and the, the way he's kind of in shadow and he's got the hat down and it's, it's perfect. It's beautiful. <laughs> well, I think we're going to wax poetic all over this film, but let's try to hit some of those high points if we can. What are some of the big elements of the film that you absolutely loved or is there do you want to start with characters do you want to start with the setting what do you want to start with let's start with character because boy howdy did i love edward g robinson in this movie <laughs> yes 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 he's proto columbo <laughs> yeah and, and i think we should start off by saying that he's third billing in this film he is brought in as a co-star as a as a less than lead performance and this is after he had made his name in hollywood as the gangster so this was a massive step down for him but at the time he was getting older he wasn't getting those younger gangster parts anymore and this was the film that made him realize that he could reinvent himself as a second build actor that could get a lot of money do less work and 
really shine doing scenes that he'd never had done before. And this was the one that really made him realize that there was still life for him out there if he was willing to just take a step down and not take that stop pilling. And he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the heck out of it. And you can see him having fun in this role. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's hits every weird little beat and every quirk of that character that you're talking about, you know, the little man in me that is like, Oh, He's talking about the little man that helps him do his investigations. When the little man's rumbling, then he knows that there's something wrong. The little man tells him that there's something wrong, and that makes him hunt down and figure out what's going on. His little tick with having the cigar, and he always puts a cigar in his mouth, and Neff is always there with the, the lighter, because he's like, okay, he don't have it. And Neff comes out with the, the match and lights it up. Patting himself down. The, the scene with in their boss's office when the boss is so sure he's got, you know, the bead on this, the femme fatale that, you know, that, oh, yeah, your husband, he didn't die. It was suicide. And then he leaves and keys, Edward T. Rupp just takes him apart. Oh, it is beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. He, step by step, taking apart his boss and showing him how he's wrong and insulting him and taking him down. And the entire time, Neff is sitting in like, Oh, God, this is great. He's on my side. But at the same time, oh, dear God, I don't want to be in that position where he takes me apart. <laughs> oh, that every time he interacts with a different character, when he interacts with the witness, who's just the worst, he's such a nudge. Pardon my Yiddish, but oi, yay, is he a nudge. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I was going to stay down here. You know, see an Aussie fan. You know, if I could come down here and help out, I'm good with that. As long as it's on your dime. It's like, oh, God. And when he's chatting on the train, it's like, wow, this guy could not be more of a pain in the butt. <laughs> he, it, it, which is the way the character is written. Yeah. And he's delightful. Yes. But, you know, just Edward T. Rouse is just like, Sort of letting him ramble and go on and on. It's, it's great. Yeah, Edward G. Robinson is the hidden treasure in this film. I mean, the, the two leads are standout performances in and of themselves, but you're all right with starting off with, with Edward G. Robinson. He comes in, and the script of this movie is fast-paced. It punch, 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 punch. You can feel the beat and the rhythm of the movie, and that is something that Edward G. Robinson always did. He always had that that beat that that able to talk in that staccato, fast, punch it up, you know, lightning fast kind of talking. Yes, that's that that forties. You know, you, you see it in a lot of the the great crime films of this era, whether they're noirs or something later. I mean, that's the trademark of one of my favorite films of the era, The Thin Man, and oh, that yeah. whole series. The Nick and Nora Charles are just. Boom, 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 boom. It's you don't short of some of Aaron Sorkin's work mm -hmm. and there's very little else that keeps that level. Of, I guess what's your uh, Amy Sherman Palladino, who the Gilmore Girls yeah, yeah, yeah. also does that, that quick back and forth. Witty repartee. Yes, but you don't get that as much. As you, I mean, Joss Whedon too, but Whedon's more of a, you know, he, Whedon likes to drop the witty bomb yeah. and then go versus just keeping it going. The, at the very beginning, when 
Walter meets Phyllis and they're going back and forth. Suppose I, well, suppose I, well, suppose. I've got that here. There's a speed limit state, Mr. Neff, 45 miles per hour. How fast was I going? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose I don't take it. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuck. Suppose I bust out crying and put your, my head on your shoulder. Suppose you try putting on my husband's shoulders. That tears it. Yeah, and I can't go that fast. I mean, maybe if I work at it long enough, I can hit those speeds, but dear me. They nail those lines over and over and over again. Oh, yeah. I mean, McMurray and Stanwyck are brilliant in the, the way they play off each other. You know, you're, you're never sure what her angle is. Right. Until the very end. And even then, because it's a noir, there's a final little twist of the night. Well, let's talk about this, because the character of Phyllis Dietrichson... Uh, played by Barbara Stanwyck, she was the one who really invented the femme fatale, you might say. With, like I said, a lot of a lot of film noir is traced in this film, but I mean, she is the prototype femme fatale. So, what are we talking about with her? What what really makes her tick? Part of what makes a femme fatale is being unsure. What makes her tick? She goes in and she's initially hitting up Neff for information about the accident policy and. You're like, okay, she's being so on the nose, mm-hmm. make it so obvious what she's up to in trying to, you know, seduce this guy into aiding and abetting her and killing her husband. Mm-hmm. And then they they do it. And after that, it's kind of like, okay, is she trying to back out? Is she trying to rope him in further? Is, has this been her play all along? And then you get the reveal and spoilers for a 76-year-old movie. Um, when it turns out there's another another man involved, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, so now is she playing both sides against the middle? Or is she really in love with the other guy and this whole thing was to be with him or and it goes round and round it's wheels within wheels and you don't know if she was the one who knocked off the first mr dietrichson you don't know what her entire end game is there's also the bit that's around the fact that you don't know if she is the one coming up with this or if she's feeding off of what he's putting down if is she had a little bit of an idea and was just testing the water. Neff took it. He started getting interested in the idea, which got her more interested in the idea, which did this entire thing happen because they fed off of each other? Is it entirely her idea? Is this something just in his own head? Maybe I can get away with it. Maybe I can really do it. Maybe I can get my own money. So there's part of the femme fatale is she is not the villain of the piece. She's just the dark, mysterious lady could be the villain of the piece, or she could be the protagonist or the antagonist. She's a mixture of the two. That's what makes that that character type so fascinating, is that it's it's so broad, but at the same time, you know it when you see it. Absolutely. I mean, James M. Cain, who wrote the novel upon which the film is based, is one of the masters of the noir. I mean, he's up there with Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler and Donald Westlake as the guys who made this a genre. I mean, the other big cane is one of the other foundational film film adaptations. He's the postman always rings twice. Ah, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this guy wrote some of the, 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 again, the foundational texts up there with Chandler's uh, 
Maltese Falcon. God, am I? I'm right. No, it's uh, it's Hammett who wrote yes, Maltese yeah. Falcon. I always get them. I always those two always get mixed up in my head, and I I always I always say I should always go with my opposite instinct because when I'm sure it's a Hammett, it's a Chandler. When I'm sure it's a Chandler, it's a Hammett and, every time. And I should remember that because I use that as one of my library cards on the Unpacking the Power Power ah. Pack. There you go. <laughs> there I plugged go. in my other show already. There we go. <laughs> You got this character, this really good female character. And once again, we're dancing around the real star of the show. Because while she is stunning and amazing and graceful and, 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 and vicious, she still is second tier to Walter Neff. Yes. Fred McMurray, who narrates the film, which is another noir trope. Mm-hmm. You, you have to have that hard-boiled narration. Yeah. And Oh, he, uh, you said it last in the, at the beginning of the show, but yeah, this is not my three sons. No, 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 no. Oh boy. No. And apparently he, this is a film where he really did not want to do it. He, he fought Billy Wilder on this one. He did not want to be in this movie because he said, it's not my kind of a thing. I'm not an actor. I just do these silly kid films and I don't have to act. I don't have to really work at it. And then he was kind of also afraid, well, this is going to ruin my reputation. And he was forced into doing this by Billy Wilder. And he came out of the other side and said, man, now I have to be an actual actor. (laughs) Because he's good at it. He's really good. And the thing is, is that he brings, there's a lot of different people they had in the mix for it. But you think of all these other older classic actors, you really can't see anybody else doing it because you need somebody who kind of comes into the story with this good guy attitude, who's got this kind of, you know, bigger, taller guy kind of feel to him, but a little goofy, not not the most handsome person in the world, but somebody who can talk the talk, walk the walk, and can all of a sudden dredge up that dark, dark interior and makes you question. You can't see the darkness on him at all until he brings it up. His height, the, the scenes between him, I was watching the movie with my wife, and there's one point where Edward G. Robinson is, Keyes is trying to get Neff to join him to become an insurance investigator versus a salesman. And Neff turns him down at, partially because he's involved in this whole thing and partially because he's going to have to take a pay cut. And Keyes winds up saying, I thought you were braver than everybody else around here, but no, you're just taller. Uh-huh. And we actually paused the movie for a second because we, we had to look it up. Fred McMurray was 6'3". Edward G. Robinson is 5'7". Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he towers over him. And you're absolutely right. He has a, a clean-cut look. The only other actor I can, I can think of in my head who, who is generally kind of a clean-cut sort of guy but can occasionally get that air of darkness... In my head, it's Jimmy Stewart. But they were looking at Alan Ladd, James Cagney, Spencer Tracy, Gregory Peck, Frederick March, and they even approached George Raft. Huh. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, those are some great actors. And a lot of them, it's funny, I know a lot of those guys from Crime Radio. Uh-huh. They did, uh, Alan Ladd was Box 13, which if you've never heard it is one of my favorite old time radio shows where he's a writer who puts this ad in the newspaper for, you know, box 13 and a adventure wanted. And he just goes on all of these adventures and he's always, he's got the, the, the ditzy secretary. He's, he's not a hard boiled detective. Yeah. He's more of a, a, a light and, and George Raft did a bunch of that stuff 
too. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, you know, any of these guys could have maybe done the role, but I don't think they could have delivered what you got from Fred McMurray because Fred McMurray comes into it with the ha- the like you said, he is a happy-go-lucky kind of guy, and that's the kind of roles he was known for doing, and. He's able to come in there, and you see that on the on the surface. But then when he starts talking, he brings up just that little bit of an edge, and that's that's enough to sell the character as being real and as being something that's interesting and fun. What did you think about the plot itself? We are talking about a film noir, the granddaddy of all film noir, and it's based upon an insurance scheme. <laughs> I mean, the the insurance scheme in general. I mean, that's a, a a kind of classic. You know, you're you're watching it, and it's kind of like, okay, you're gonna get away with fifty thousand bucks, but if we can get him to die on a train, it's a hundred thousand. It's like you're getting a little greedy here, and and that that would immediately throw red flags for you know. I'd have to imagine for anybody, it's like, well, he just signed this policy where if he dies on a train, he gets a you get twice the money, and he happens to die on a train. Okay. But but Walter Neff has got a plan. Walter Neff has got a plan. And and it's a good plan. It's a good plan. The, the plot itself is always fascinating to me because this is, like you said, an insurance scheme kind of at the basis. You know, it's all about money. Whenever you get down to it, it's always about money. Murder and death occur about money. This thing has so much rooted in modern day film, especially if you look at the Coen brothers, because the Coen brothers excel at this type of movie it's a simple simple plan nobody's you know we're going to kill maybe one person but nobody's going to ever get hurt and then it starts snowballing okay what are we going to have to do to to cover this track what are we going to have to do to cover this track okay we have to change our plan now this is more complicated now yeah it 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 changes and it becomes more and more deadly as it goes through you're nihilist donnie (laughs) (laughs) the whole thing with that sub that plot in the big lebowski where it just becomes such a mess fargo is the same way all you're right the coen brothers are the masters of the modern the fiasco crime story where just oh you never you're 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 screwed just it keeps going but that's the difference between the mod the the coen brothers so they add that that little bit of comedy in here you don't have that release valve of comedy there may be one or two little jokes in there edward g robinson provides some light-hearted touches but you don't have that's that's another thing that makes a film noir a film noir is that it's just bleak, it's incredibly bleak. Oh yeah, no. The whole point of the noir is there in the long run are no innocents, and if there are, they are chattel. Yes, they are going to die or going to be ruined by the world around them. Let me change tracks on this train. Ah, see what I did there. <laughs> Is there any parts of this film, I mean, it is an older film, is there any parts that you didn't like or felt really slow to you? Not slow. I mean, I I like a a movie that takes its time and that builds. So there are things I kind of wish we had spent a little more time with, actually. Lola, the daughter, Mm -hmm. and her beau, I guess, would be, or whatever, her boyfriend her the, the betrayer nino the bad boy that she has to like yeah yeah is a we didn't spend enough time with either of them to make them fully fleshed out characters and so i if that might have slowed down the movie a little more than it was than was needed if we did spend more time with them but at the same time without it they felt very much like necessities of the plot mm-hmm 
versus fully fleshed out characters. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Especially Nino, who was just sort of there for one scene acting like a jerk and then pops up for, you know, 20 seconds at the end of the movie. Right. And he's actually a plot device. Like they really just kind of throw him in there at the end. It's like, and he's back. And we needed to, you needed to know that because we needed another guy in the movie. Yeah. I I think the, the biggest part with Lola is that she is, she is potential collateral damage in this. That's the audience's hook is that you all of a sudden you're feeling really worried for this girl. She's too close to the situation. She is too innocent. She is in danger. Yeah. In danger girl. I mean, it's, it's bad news, but you know, there, there's nobody there that's on her side. Nobody really knows about her. Nobody knows what, what her deal is. I will tell you after the movie and when Amber and I were talking about it, we kind of thought in a modern take on this story, she and her stepmother would be the the couple. They would be in on it together. Hmm. They that she would have been having, you know, she would have been old enough that the two of them would have been having an affair that and oh, the okay. whole plot would have been them attempting to bump off the the husband. I would say I would say that would be an early nineties salacious flick type of one. Yeah, I could see that. Bound. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it's a bound. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's very much bound. Yeah. Which is why it was just th- it, it kind of popped into my head because I was just think that movie is one of those movies that it's like, I'm sure if I went back and watched it now, I'd be like, Ugh. but at the time was something like transgressive and different. I think I would agree with you. I think that would be a nineties one. I think a 2010s going into the 2020s, I think we might actually start seeing something in Leave more a little. I think we'd be going backwards a little bit. I don't think we'd see that. I think we would see her as not only you'd be she'd be in danger, but she would die. She would die, and there would be a lot more bodies piling up. Yeah, Nino would be he he would have gotten much more deeply seduced, yep. not just physically, but you know, mentally by Phyllis. Yeah. You also that character in a modern film would not be Phyllis. No. That, the, <laughs> the names in this movie are very much Walter and Phyllis and Barton. Although at the same time, I like those and I would like to have oh, them in the in yeah. a current movie because that would be bring a throwback to the old times and also how boring are these people? How how much are these people just regular Joes? Because that's the other thing is that yeah, this guy's got some oil money behind him, but there's nothing extremely flashy or elegant about anything they live in. They, they kind of hint that it's a nicer house than normal, but it's not a mansion. So these are still normal, more or less everyday people that just have a little bit extra money, and she wants more. This isn't Knives Out, where they're ultra wealthy and all have these posh names exactly i i like the simplicity of it i like the the everydayness of it i think that is another selling point for what the movie is oh yeah no it absolutely works for the film yeah as we start wrapping up here what are the some other big heavy high points you really enjoyed that we haven't touched on yet i loved the plan that they had to meet uh, that walter and phyllis had to meet in the grocery store it's just such a neat little touch and there's that absolutely wonderful scene and it is both heart-rending and borderline comedic when she's coming up to his apartment and keys shows up first and they're in the apartment and she walks up and it's like oh god what are they gonna do how is she gonna get and he 
and Walter opens the door and she's hiding behind the door. Which never, ever would happen because an apartment like that, the door would always be swinging in, not out. But we need to make it work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and it's like, they've got, I, I forget. It's like, okay, they've got elevator operators, but they don't have doormen because people are just coming up to this guy's apartment. I think. You think nowadays, if there is a building that would have an elevator operator, and I doubt there are many left, they have a doorman too, because that's because this is well, posh. Well, it, w- it would be more of the they're ringing in. You have to buzz in, and you know, oh, so and so's here, and whatever. So yeah, you wouldn't have the same thing. There would have to be something different. Or she had a key that she could get in. She didn't need to buzz in. The other thing I think we should also mention too is the final scene, the death scene, because at the end there are you know, two other people who die in this, and that is the two main characters. They shoot each other. What'd you think about that? I like that. I mean, they set it up at the beginning. I mean, he, when you first see Neff, he's holding his arm and the blood, it spreads over the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. You're, so he's clearly bleeding. You know, something happened and it's that slow build to, okay, what happened to him to cause this? And it's, it's not quite, as dramatic a turn as another Billy Wilder classic, Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. But it's still like, okay, you're you're waiting for whatever caused him to start bleeding to happen. And it's a noir. You know he got shot. Mm-hmm. You've got to imagine who it is. But that the moment when she shoots him and she has the chance that she can't do it. And then she gets one of those, the lines, and I, I should have written it down, but it's something to the effect of, I didn't know I love you until I couldn't pull the trigger. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oof, right before he double tapped yep. and she's gone. And it's like, it, that's, that is a noir moment. That's, love is not enough. Love does not win out in a noir. And this is also the difference between a pre-code film, a code film, and a modern film. Pre-code film, he would have gotten away. Um, he would have been able to, he, he would have killed her and Neff would have gotten away. Or he would have been, he would have gotten by justice somehow. Modern film, oh, it would be blood all over the place, people dying left and right, and who knows how they would have ended it. But this is falling into place after the Hayes office, after the the film code was in, and they're like, no, he's got to have punishment. So he should have died at the end there, but no, he's... He's dying, but he's going to be fine, and the cops are going to come, and he's going to serve justice because he must have justice. In 1936, when this film was originally going to be made, it was passed over, and the studio that had the script, they, they withdrew their bids because a letter came from Joseph Breen at the Hayes office that said, and by the way, I got this from Wikipedia, so what it is, but the general low tone and sordid flavor of the story makes it, in our judgment, thoroughly unacceptable for screen presentation before mixed audiences in the theater. I'm sure you will agree that it is most important to avoid what the code calls the hardening of audiences, especially those who are young and impressionable, to the thought and fact of crime. I am so glad that we are beyond that now, because I like me a good film. I think that they got away, I think Billy Wilder got away with a lot in this film for a postcode movie and it's pretty impressive that he was able to still present this good film noir even when he kind of blinking at the camera a little bit and saying yeah he's gonna get justice nah he dies <laughs> you know? no he, he's dying yeah. right there he's dying with his buddy yeah. and that's yeah and that's uh, the, i got the last quote there you know 
you know, enough saying no why you couldn't figure this one out, Keys. I'll tell you, because the guy you're looking for was too close, right across the desk from you. And Keys says, closer than that, Walter. Beautiful way to end the movie. Because these guys were friends. They were friends. Yeah. This is not the beginning of a beautiful friendship. No, it's the ending of a very close friendship. Is there anything else you want to say as we wrap this up? Other than y'all should go out and see this movie. <laughs> if we haven't spoiled enough, even if you, even if we have spoiled it, you should still watch this film. Yeah, the style of it alone makes it worth watching. Yes. that That's for everyone out there who's like, oh, black and white. Trust me. If you don't like black and white movies, you haven't seen the right black and white movies. Yes, this is very true. I, I'm going to ask a very, very silly question because I think... I think I can already know the answer to it, but I need to, because it's in the script, I need to ask you, how many full bakes of popcorn would you give this film? One to five, one being zero, or one being the least, five being the best, no halvesies, what are you giving it? Give me all five. I Ugh. thought so. Yeah, I, I am in complete agreement with you. This is a five-star film. There's a reason this is on all of the best lists forever and ever and ever. Yes, it is an older movie. Yes, there are some parts of the movie that are going to be a little slower to modern audiences. But guess what? That's just the way it is. It still is a classic film, and you can see a lot of the things that newer films have taken from this movie and this genre of movies. Now, on our way out the door, I always want to give my guests a chance to tell people where else they can find them. So, Matt, where can the people on the internets find you? Well, you can find most of my writing and podcasting at uh, xavierfiles.com where i write a mostly weekly column called bonus reading around a theme or character or comic book creator that's linked to something coming out that week i do bi-weekly or whenever it comes out reviews of batman along with my distinguished writing partner, Will Nevin, and also the podcast WMQ&A hosted off Xavier Files with my oldest and dearest friend and podcasting partner, Dan Grote, where we usually interview comics-adjacent people, be they uh, writers, artists, letterers, designers, podcasters, I think I might we might have someone else who has been a guest on our show a couple of times yes but yeah come and check us out we've always got you know plenty of interesting content from me from Dan from Will and from all sorts of other really great writers at Xavier Files I cannot have said it any better myself it's a great little empire that you guys have joined into because you guys had your own little empire and then you got eaten up by the bigger Xavier <laughs> empires and now you're just now you guys are just eating up everything uh, but you haven't eaten me up. I'm still independent. I'm on my... Wait, this show's on the Longbox Crusade Network. Wait, dang it. I haven't eaten up. Never mind. Anyways, you can find me on Twitter at Jeff Rick Presents or on my other podcast, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, which I host with my blonde-haired femme fatale, Jeff. If you would like to be on this show, please feel free to contact me. You can reach me at Jeff and Rick Present, all one word, at gmail.com. And a big thank you to Longbox Crusade Network for letting me hang out in this wonderful old smoky and dusty attic with slats on the windows. And for some reason, it's always black and white in here. Anyways, they let me hang out in here to broadcast their show, and I love them for it. I'd also like to thank their sponsor, Omaha Bound. Now, they are on a one-year hiatus for their binding, but you can still go to their website, and you can still buy books from them, and they will be back for binding purposes soon. Also want to thank the Longbox Crusade members who help support this network. If you would like to support it, please head on over to Patreon and search for the Longbox Crusade. That's all the time we have today. 
Go out, grab the popcorn, and pull the seat. We'll be back soon with another episode. The music for this episode is Fall Back by musical genius Joe November. Check out his SoundCloud at josephlin99. That's J-O-S-E-F-L-I-N-9-9.